Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Welcome to the first episode of Queer by Candlelight. We are very excited to introduce our new podcast. I'm Elizabeth Crane, and I'm coming to you here today wearing my most overdramatic nightgown and gripping a candelabra. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I am holding the biggest meat cleaver you've ever seen, and I'm currently admiring the dead butterfly sitting in front of me. We decided to create this podcast because we noticed that there's been a trend in media recently of queer women not getting the respect they deserved, and this topic of queer people in horror movies has definitely been uh, in the cultural zeitgeist recently. And it's something that both of us are extremely passionate about. I watch horror movies pretty constantly. Um, And as a lesbian, I am very passionate about queer people, specifically in horror movies, because it's a very complicated topic. And it's a topic that's got a lot of history to it. We are definitely going to dive into historical topics like the Hays Code and the subsequent representation of queer people as villains, both through a negative lens and through people sort of appropriating those negative depictions into their own positive associations with these horror films. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a queer desi person, and it's so interesting seeing the depiction of queer minorities in film and, like, media in general. So seeing how horror portrays them is, like, of particular interest to me. And, like, I love horror. I think it's really fun. I enjoy uh, the thrill and being scared, and I just want to explore it a little more. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be doing this podcast. We've both been thinking about doing this for such a long time. We cannot wait to bring our first episode to you, which leads us to mention that today we are talking about Crimson Peak, the 2015 Guillermo del Toro film. We will be spoiling the movie in this episode, so do not listen if you care about learning what the end of this movie is, which certainly has some weird plot twists, concerning plot twists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very concerning. Very concerning. (laughs) So this movie was directed by Guillermo del Toro and written by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins. And when it came out, it wasn't particularly well received. I don't think it was panned necessarily, but people weren't talking about it that much. But the two of us are kind of obsessed with this movie. A hundred percent. It's just... It's so beautifully made. I just love the detail. So part of what we want to talk about in this episode is why the two of us are so obsessed with it and everyone else is like, it's fine. It's a movie. So I think one way we can approach this difference in interest comes from a review by critic Dan Jolin, who says, and I quote, It's borderline camp at points, but if you're partial to a bit of Victorian romance with hammer horror gloop and big frilly nightgowns, Del Toro delivers an uncommon treat. I'm always here for big frilly nightgowns. Exactly. (laughs) Everything he lists as being something that is featured in this movie is one of my favorite things. I mean, we've got borderline camp, Victorian romance, hammer horror, and big frilly nightgowns. Mm -hmm. You know I love big frilly (laughs) nightgowns. They're so unnecessary. (laughs) Why do I not constantly walk around creepy hallways wearing the most ridiculous nightgown you have ever seen? A hundred percent. My lifelong dream. 
you know, when I'm looking for a house in the future, I'm going to look for a house with a big ass staircase so I can walk down in a huge frilly nightgown and be living my fantasy. And I'm a humanities major, so I will not be affording that. But you're welcome to come over at any time. So we're going to start our episode with a little discussion of the plot so that you understand what we're referencing, what we're talking about. And we're going to go into detail when we feel like it, but it's meant to mostly just be an overview so you get the idea. And once again, spoiler warning. Yeah, I do want to start by discussing the fact that the Universal logo that they show has a creepy kid singing behind (laughs) it, but there's no creepy kids in this movie. No, there isn't. I guess it's, like, to set the tone, but, like... Exactly. (laughs) It truly tells you right from the bat that this movie is just for the aesthetic. Yeah, it's camp. The aesthetic's there, and we're all here for it. Yeah, so you get right from this unnecessary intro that they are really hammering in this creepy gothic aesthetic, and that is all this movie is going to be. Mm -hmm. So it starts off with our protagonist, Edith, covered in blood out in the snow. She's clearly, like, really badly injured, and something's happened to her, but we pan away quickly, and we get a voiceover of Edith saying that ghosts are real. And she narrates that she learned this when she was a child because her mother died. And we get a flashback to child Edith. Edith was 10, and we find out that when she was 10, her mother died of cholera. And there's a zoom in on Edith's face that we think feels very 80s. Um, Real fun. It looks (laughs) like it's in Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And then we see young Edith in her bed, and she hears a creak, and she's crying, and she turns over, and then she sees a ghost of her mother walking down the hallway and turns into her bedroom. This shot was so creepy to watch. It was just like the anticipation. You're like, what is that? And then you realize it's her mom, and you're like, damn, it's a ghost. <laughs> um, and you see like a, this hand just like wrap around the corner and it's absolutely terrifying absolutely terrifying so when we see the hand wrap around the corner I basically knew immediately that Doug Jones was doing the special effects like acting for this movie without even having to look it up because every time when he's playing someone creepy he's gonna do a weird like hand around a door frame one finger at a time it's just like when he played the like lead gentleman in Buffy I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer but Doug Jones is I mean do we even need to say he's like a master of his craft and he plays not all the ghosts in this movie but he plays Edith's mother and he plays uh, the Sharps' mother, who we will discuss soon. So he plays the ones that sort of get, like, more screen time. And I think he really contributes with his, like, body work to why these ghosts are so terrifying. No, it's so cool. It's so cool. And also, like, the style of ghost design. Because I feel like when you think of ghosts, you think, oh, it's like a human that's, like, transparent. But what I really liked about this movie is just that it wasn't, like, the usual ghost design. Because, like, at first you're like, what are those? You know, are those monsters? Like, what are they? And then you realize that they're they're ghosts and they're, like, people. And you're like, damn, 
that's wild. That's crazy. Yeah, they look a bit skeletal. They definitely look not human distinctly. And they also all look different depending on how they died and where they died. So when we see Edith's mother, she's black. And I think this is a reference to the fact that Edith says she dies of black cholera. And it's very effective to see this ghostly figure turn the corner down the hallway So after Edith sees it down the hallway, she turns her back to it. Because she's a little girl, she's really scared. So she huddles up in her bed and turns her back to it. And the ghost of her mother, like, grabs her shoulder from behind. And I definitely jumped the first time I saw it. No, it was so scary. And then her mom just warned her to beware of Crimson Peak. Um, a very, very important piece of dialogue uh, for this movie. I mean, it is the namesake. Um, <laughs> and then um, her mother disappears. The narrator then says that it would be years until like she actually understood what this warning meant and that she would understand it way too late. Another line of dialogue that uh, Edith as the narrator has here is that this was a warning from out of time. And I thought this was really interesting wording because it implies that the dead are out of time. Yeah, you know, that's what that's something I was wondering about. I was like, how does she know? She like just died. How does she know to beware of Crimson Peak? You know, where is she getting this information from? So that makes so much sense. Yeah, because Edith's mother has never been to Crimson Peak. She doesn't know about Crimson Peak, but her ghost does. And her ghost comes back to warn her daughter as a child about this danger that she will face later in life. Mm -hmm. So here we get a shot of a book called Crimson Peak, which establishes that this entire story is sort of a framing device where the movie is a gothic novel. And this is really effective because the movie relies so heavily on this gothic novel aesthetic that I honestly think the movie would be much weaker if it didn't have this one shot establishing that this is, in fact, a gothic novel. And Del Toro cites Jane Eyre, Carmilla, and Radcliffe, and many other gothic novels as his inspiration, and you definitely see all of that coming through very clearly throughout the plot. We'll come back to this idea later, but it is extremely clear that this was his one inspiration was these novels. Also, it's worth pointing out here that the main character is named Edith and is an aspiring author, which is definitely a reference to Edith Wharton, who is an author who has written many gothic novels and ghost stories. I love her collection of ghost short stories. There's one about ghost dogs that Mm -hmm. I am particularly fond of. They're kind of cute, just a little spooky, Uh you know? So I think this establishing shot of Crimson Peak as a gothic novel really sets up what you're getting yourself into here. Mm-hmm. I love that. Sorry, I'm still on the ghost dogs. That's uh-huh. so cute. Oh yeah, I totally recommend it. It's by <laughs> Edith Wharton. It's just a little short story. I think the plot is that like uh, a rich lady was killed by her husband, and now the ghosts of her dogs haunt the husband because they're mad he killed their owner. That's so, as they should. As they should. A little, little spooky. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyways, cut to 14 years later, we see Edith, who's now a 24-year-old woman living in Buffalo, New York, and she goes to meet Ogilvy, a publisher, because she wants to see if he would publish her manuscript, because she's in, she wants to be an author, and honestly, go off, girl boss, 
go off. Um, and while she goes there, while she goes to see Ogilvy, she also runs into Alan McMichael, um, who says he's setting up his optician's practice in the same building. And she also runs into his mother, Mrs. McMichael, uh, who says a baronet is in town and is there to visit Eunice. To that, Edith says that aristocrats feed off the poor because... They do. Uh, <laughs> the tensions established between Edith and, like, the other, like, wealthy woman of the town. Because Edith is different. She's not like other girls. She's definitely not like mm-hmm. other girls. And this is another topic we're going to discuss uh, in the discussion portion of our episode. But I do think that Del Toro has this sort of interesting perspective where he's trying to create a feminist film, but he's not quite sure how to do that. And I do think that shows through how aggressively and immediately Edith disagrees with every other female character that's introduced. Mm -hmm. So here we see this tension that Edith does not get along with any of the other women in Boston at all. Yeah. Um, because, like, the woman also, like, tried to make fun of her by saying she's, like, Jane Austen, who died without ever getting married. And then in response, Edith says that she'd rather be, like, Mary Shelley, who died as a widow. I wonder if that's foreshadowing. Huh. Could that be some foreshadowing, I see? Wow, look at that. Um, but also, um, when Edith is talking to Mrs. McMichael, it's important to note that Alan does try to defend her, implying that he has he has some feelings for her. I see you there, lover boy. (laughs) And I really love this line about saying that she'd like to be like Mary Shelley because I think it does a very good job of setting the tone of the movie and this character of Edith because she's choosing a horror writer over a romance writer. So then she goes to visit Ogilvy, who calls her book a ghost story, and she says it's not. It's more a story with a ghost in it. The ghost is just a metaphor. And this is a very meta line that directly references the plot of this movie, which has ghosts in it, but the ghosts are ultimately only supporting characters to the drama of the living characters. No, that's so... I love it when films are meta. It's so fun. Ogilweed then is... He's kind of misogynistic. Not kind of. He is misogynistic to her. Um, and insists that should, she should be writing romance novels instead of... In his words, ghost stories. But we all know it's a story with ghosts in it. She then complains to her father, who's honestly top tier. Love him. Um, He's loving and supportive of her, and he gives her a pen. Um, She also then asks to come to his office to use his typewriter so that her feminine handwriting won't give away her gender. Yeah, and I also really like her father because he's played by Jim Beaver, who was in Supernatural, and I was a cringy Supernatural teenager. Apologies <laughs> for that, but I was. So I saw him, and I was like, oh, I just know this character's about to be iconic. Mm-hmm. And he is! He he's is. really sweet. A hundred percent. Next day, you know, so build up, she goes to his office to use the typewriter, um, and when she's there, the baronet that Mrs. McMichael was discussing, Sir Thomas Sharp, comes to visit her father. Um, and, like, immediately we see him and we're like, this dude, he's emo as heck. <laughs> <laughs> he is so emo. He looks right out of a gothic novel. Exactly what you'd expect. He's wearing all black and he has, like, dyed black hair. I mean... I guess we only know that it's dyed black because he's played by Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. We all know what Tom Hiddleston looks like, but you know. Um, <laughs> well, and, it still stands. Yeah. 
And this is in sharp contrast to every other character because the costume designer, Kate Hawley, does a fantastic job with this movie. And she's set up that every character who lives in Boston wears whites, golds, light browns, and they have these very light color palette costumes including Edith who in the first scenes of this movie is shown almost exclusively wearing white and yellow and we also see a contrast in hair color most of the people living in Boston have blonde or gray hair and Sir Thomas Sharp has very black <laughs> over dramatic hair I also think that this movie does a very good job of like playing off of casting types because they did cast Tom Hiddleston in this role. And especially in 2015, Tom Hiddleston was so well known for yeah. playing Loki. Yeah. And I do think that this character plays very well off of that sort of like morally gray type, type of character. character. Yeah. So cool. So emo. The entire time, I remember I watched it for the first time with Elizabeth. And the whole time, I was like, this dude is so fucking emo. Like, please. <laughs> like, please. But I'm so here for it. I love the aesthetic. When um, Thomas Sharp comes in, uh, he sees that she's writing something and takes an interest in her writing. And also says that he doesn't take ghosts lightly, which speaks speaks to um, Edith's heart. She's very happy to see this man taking her seriously and taking an interest in her writing. So we know that Sir Thomas Sharp is here to meet with Edith's father, Mr. Cushing, and Sharp explains that his family owns a red clay mine that has been sort of overmined and they need a new machine to continue mining clay that's deeper in the earth, but he doesn't have enough funding to make this machine. And Mr. Cushing insults him by saying that he's already failed to raise capital in London, Milan, and Edinburgh. And at first we think this is not relevant information and they're just sort of building out this man's mm -hmm. backstory no this is definitely going to come back <laughs> later and then mr cushing continues by saying that his hands are too soft reflecting that he does not work hard enough go off honestly iconic iconic calling him out but later that night, Mr. Cushing is going to a ball that is hosted by Mrs. McMichael, and Edith doesn't want to come. Mr. Cushing tells Edith that he hates Lord Sharp, if that wasn't obvious enough from his interaction with him earlier. Uh, but Edith defends him by saying that he's a dreamer and clearly on hard times, because she noticed that her his clothes were kind of worn. So even if maybe his hands are too soft, he was still like going through stuff. Alan then comes up to to pick up Mr. Cushing, and Mr. Cushing hints, hints, that the two would make a good couple. We see you there, Mr. Matchmaker. Yeah, Mr. Cushing, and probably pretty much everyone in uh, Buffalo. Uh-huh. Have I been calling it Boston the whole time? Yikes. Everyone in Buffalo. Except for maybe Alan's mom. Yeah, except probably Mrs. McMichael thinks that Edith and Alan are going to get married because they do seem to be very close friends mm -hmm. and they definitely get along. And we know that in Victorian times, if you were a man and a woman and you got along, you were about to get married. A hundred percent. Match done. Yeah. <laughs> no discussion. But the two call Edith stubborn to the bone for not coming to the ball. But Mr. Cushing says that it's a good thing. He really supports his daughter for 
being outspoken, which Literally. for the time period, you know, he's doing it's, a good job. It's different. It's like, good for you. Good for you. Doing what other men should be doing. After the two men leave, Edith goes to her room alone where she does research on Lord Sharp's home, which we learn is called Allerdale Hall. She hears the door handle to her room creak. The door opens of its own accord, and Edith's mother appears again as a ghost at the end of the hall. Edith slams the door shut, but it's a ghost, and ghosts definitely (laughs) can get through doors. So the ghost just, you know, walks through the door and again repeats to beware of Crimson Peak. It is, once again, very effective. I love these ghost scenes. Mm -hmm. Like, once again, the design amazing it's so cool and so terrifying to just see him edith then falls to the floor from seeing the ghost and then a maid appears and says that sir thomas sharp is there and insists on talking to edith thomas invites her to go to the ball with him saying that he needed someone to translate from british english to american english And Edith doesn't want to be alone anymore because she's scared of the ghosts, so she agrees to go. We now switch to the ball scene, and we get our first intro to the new character of Lucille Sharp, Thomas's older sister. And we get the shot of her playing piano at the ball, wearing this extremely opulent, gothic-to-the-T, like, red ball gown with this massive train that goes out behind her, which is, once again, a noticeable departure in color palette from what everyone else is wearing, which is especially distinct at this ball scene, where Edith and all the other women from Buffalo are wearing this pale peach color, whereas Lucille is wearing bright red. Mm -hmm. Eunice invites Thomas to dance with her by saying that no one in America knows how to dance a proper waltz, and insists that Lord Sharp demonstrate a proper European waltz very fancy. (laughs) He claims that a candle flame will not be extinguished in the hand of the lead dancer during a properly smooth waltz, and then passes up Eunice to ask Edith to be his partner for the waltz. And the entire crowd gasps, which I think is so funny, because I just imagine what it would be like to be like a background character in one of these movies where you're just like, Oh my god, I need to gasp dramatically because these people I met like once like (laughs) talk to each other. Crazy. So I just think it's funny that everyone else at this ball is way over invested in this. A hundred percent. I mean, everyone loves a good piece of gossip. Mm -hmm, They're like, mm -hmm. Edith and Thomas Sharp? I thought he was here for Eunice. What is this? What is this? T. T. That later on. (laughs) Plays a huge role. Yeah. Edith does try to turn him down at first, but then he insists on the dance. So, you know, if if a tall emo boy asks you to dance and you're like, no, and he's like, no, come on, dance. Like, you have to say yes. You have Even to. I would say yes, and I'm not even attracted <laughs> to men. Like, it's so overdramatic just for the vibes. Exactly. Exactly. And then we see that Lucille's glaring a little bit. Hmm. Suspicious behavior. And Eunice looks like she's having a meltdown. Poor Eunice. Yeah, she's not having a good time Mm -mm. at this ball. But then we get this string quartet and piano piece, which I'm a violin player. I love this piece. It's so, like, classical era, traditional dance. And I feel like pieces like that don't appear in movies very often at the moment. And it's just a gorgeous piece of music. 
Um, so yeah, they dance in front of everyone with like just this couple being on the floor. And the candle is not extinguished at the end of the dance. So clearly they did a good job. Mm-hmm. Go off. We then go to the next morning where Mr. Cushing is talking to a man named Holly. And Holly seems to be a private investigator. He asked Holly to investigate the Sharps for him because he feels like something about them is not right. Maybe it's their, their inherent gothicness. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but Mr. Cushing is so unwilling to trust them, like, on site. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Also, Holly is played by Bern Gorman, who is in Torchwood. And once again... I was an annoying Doctor Who teenager, so I was like, oh my god, this is just like Torchwood. <laughs> um, Edith also goes to visit Alan at his optician's practice, and he shows her pictures of glass plate photography that contain ghosts, and he says that he believes in ghosts, but says not everyone can see them. Hmm. Edith then suggests that people only notice ghosts when the time comes to see them, uh, which is something that we know she has experienced. Alan then cautions her against the Sharps, um, but then Edith says that he has been gone traveling for too long. This is a interesting scene because it's pretty much the only one we get between Edith and Alan where they're alone and talking, and this movie does sort of rely on you as an audience member thinking that these two work well together. And I do think that... The scene is ultimately very forgettable because it's a bit slow and I personally don't think that Alan really brings anything interesting to the table. Like, <laughs> what is this man interested in? What is he up to? Eyes, right? Is that what optics yeah. do? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he sure does examine people's eyes. But we also see that the reason why Edith is not interested in him is because he seems to have left her to go traveling. So she's probably still upset about that. Yeah. And from here, we get to a scene where Edith goes for a walk with Thomas in the park. He praises her writing, which she's very happy about. And I also want to point out that Thomas is wearing silly little Victorian sunglasses, <laughs> despite the fact that it is clearly not a sunny day out. And this choice alone had me completely convinced that the Sharps were vampires the first time I saw this movie. <laughs> I was so convinced that this was a vampire film. And to be honest, I kind of wish it had been. Uh We will also get to this in the discussion portion of the episode. But I know several people who thought this was going to be a vampire film the first time around. And ultimately, I I think it would have worked better. (laughs) Like, it's so valid. They're so emo. They're so emo. They're wearing dark colors. He's wearing his silly little sunglasses. It's like... What else are we supposed to think? Like, open your mouth a little more. Let me see those things. <laughs> so, while they're at the park, Edith starts talking to Lucille, who's looking at a bunch of dead butterflies on so the ground. Emo. She's literally looking at a large collection of dead butterflies. When we say they are emo, we are not exaggerating. <laughs> Edith says that it's really sad that these butterflies have died, but Lucille says that beautiful things are fragile, and she holds one of the dead butterflies up right next to Edith, making the symbolism not really even symbolism no, anymore. It's in your face. Yeah. That is a common thread in this movie, I would say, is that 
The symbolism is so over the top that at some point it just stops being symbolism. Yeah. You're so right in saying that. So then Lucille says that at Allerdale Hall, the Sharps' home, they have black moths that lack beauty and eat butterflies. Hmm. I wonder who these black moths are. Wow. wow. The who return ever? of absolutely no subtlety. <laughs> So then there's this weird close-up CGI shot of ants eating the dead butterfly's eyeball, which I do think is very much a departure in style from the rest of the film, except for the end credits, which sort of replicate this shot. And I am very curious about why the shot was included, because I don't think it's necessary, and I do think it is quite different from the rest of the... Yeah. Honestly, maybe it was just like... In case you didn't realize this was a metaphor for something, here's another really, really obvious thing that tells you that it's a metaphor for something. Oh. You're probably right. So then Edith leaves, and Lucille goes over to Thomas and says that Edith is the wrong choice because she's too young. Thomas disagrees and asks Lucille for her ring, which is this giant ruby. Lucille gives him the ring, but insists that she needs it back soon and says that she has earned it. Thomas says that he needs to be successful if she wants it back because this is the last thing they have that they could sell. We then see Holly, the private investigator, reporting back to Mr. Cushing and says that he has bad news that shouldn't be discussed in public. Very mysterious. Very mysterious. I wonder what it could be. The characters are all at this big dinner party at the Cushing's house, and Thomas is clearly about to propose to Edith, which is like, dog, you've known her two days. Two. Two Two days. days. Count them. One, two. (laughs) But then Mr. Cushing, King, grabs him (laughs) and says that he needs to talk to him and his sister. He then hands Thomas some documents and says that he's mad that Thomas is flirting with his daughter. This document contains some information that keeps Thomas from marrying Edith. We don't know what this is, but it'll come back later. Mr. Cushing then hands the Sharps a check with a lot of money and says that if they want the check to clear, they need to be on a train out of town the next morning and Thomas needs to thoroughly break Edith's heart. Just looking out for his daughter, you know? (laughs) Yeah, this is the one time when I'm like, Mr. Cushing, maybe not the best father because he's like, you need to break her heart. Yeah. Just break it. (laughs) Mercilessly. Yeah. And then at dinner, instead of proposing, Thomas announces that the Sharps are leaving the next morning and then Edith runs off. Thomas then catches up to her and brutally tells her that her novel is actually bad because it's too sentimental and reveals that she hasn't lived at all. He says that she knows nothing of love and is a spoiled child. Wow. The audacity. Um, Edith then slaps him in front of the crowd that has scattered. Which he deserved, and it's an iconic moment. Iconic. No, I bet you this crowd's like, what? I just saw them dancing together. Like, what? Yesterday. This town has so much juicy gossip that they could be discussing. Um, And then, for some reason, there's another, like, weird zoom in on Lucille's face. The next morning, Mr. Cushing is back at his gentleman's club where he met with Holly, and he's shaving when he hears a weird noise. He goes to investigate, 
and a black-gloved killer slams his head against the sink until he dies. And this is actually, like, very gory. I mean, it's not, like, the most out there for a horror movie, but compared to the rest of what's happening in this movie, this is very gruesome. I do think... Also, the black-gloved killer is sort of a reference to the giallo, like, black-gloved killer motif. Um, So I think likely Del Toro was referencing that genre. Mm -hmm. So after the death of Mr. Cushing, a maid delivers a letter to Edith from Sir Thomas Sharp. And he says in the letter that her father made him break her heart and take the blame for it. But he says that he will be back when he has the money to provide for her. And of course, this does an excellent job in manipulating Edith into thinking Thomas has done nothing wrong. So she runs to his hotel to accept his apology, but is told he's already checked out. Eventually, Thomas shows back up at the hotel as Edith chases him down and reveals that Mr. Cushing had bribed him to leave, but says he could never leave her and that's why he came back, even though Lucille has already left to return to their home. He gives a very romantic speech and they kiss in the middle of the hotel. I wonder if once again, like, I'm sure, I'm sure the people around her watching, they're like, they were dancing. She slapped him and now they're kissing. What? what? Oh, the absolute oh, drama God. of these two. And this is the first time that the soundtrack turns into this gorgeous, like sweeping orchestral melody. I really want to take the time to talk about how good Fernando Velasquez's soundtrack to this movie is. It is everything a gothic horror soundtrack should be. It's just this lush, like, string instrument, like, full orchestra sound, but it does a really good job of being creepy when it needs to be as well. And I feel like this is somewhat of an anomaly in recent movies. I feel like movies are scared to have good orchestral soundtracks, but they went for it in this one, and it absolutely paid off. As they're walking out of the hotel together, a man approaches Edith and takes off his hat, like a mourner would do. And Edith immediately realizes that something is wrong. We then shift to the morgue where Edith has to identify the body of her father. Alan tries to protect her from seeing the mutilated body, but the coroner says that it has to be a family member. The coroner also says that it's an accident because he slipped on wet floor, but Alan seems to have different suspicions, which makes sense. Like, this dude's head was bashed repeatedly. Like, how does that, how do you, how do you, how do you get that gory of a scene if you just, whoops, water? Um, Edith then gets mad at Alan for manhandling the body and has a monologue showing that she refused to recognize that he's dead and asks why her father's hands feel so cold. She then collapses into Thomas's arms, who says he's there for her. Rather convenient, don't you think? Mm, Definitely a little convenient. So then we get a quick scene at her father's funeral where really the only important information we get is that Edith is wearing the sharp ring that Lucille had been super possessive of earlier, and we get another one of those weird 80s zoom-in transitions into this ring. Then we get this return of this amazing soundtrack and this sweeping orchestral melody as Edith and Thomas's carriage arrives at Allerdale Hall. And we see this house for the first time in all of its over-the-top gothic glory. This set is the best set on the face of the planet. I'm sorry, it's so good. 
I think we'll get into some details of the set later, but just know it is the most gorgeous gothic mansion no, ever. so gorgeous. And the fact that Del Toro, like, insisted on this house being made from scratch, like, hands off to the set designers and, like, everyone who worked on the film because it's just beautiful. But when they get there, there are a couple of weird things that happen. First, the groundskeeper says that Sir Thomas Sharp has been married for ages when Thomas tries to introduce Edith as his new wife. And then Edith also finds this tiny little cute lapdog, which Thomas says couldn't be a stray because no one else lives nearby. Hmm. I wonder whose lapdog it is. And then we get to see the inside of the house for the first time. And it's absolutely beautiful. There are bright blue walls with dark with a dark wood staircase and a balcony and a massive fireplace. There's also a big hole in the ceiling that Thomas says that the family doesn't have enough money to repair right now. Then Thomas also shows her the mines of red clay that are right below the house, and the house is slowly sinking into them. So with the result that they're red goo that looks like blood that's constantly leaking through the floor and the walls. This is why I totally get Jolyn's review article saying that this movie is borderline camp with how hard it leans into gothic horror. The fact that Del Toro came up with this like red clay mine as a way to essentially make it look like there's constantly blood oozing through this house Mm. is such an interesting choice. I love it so much. It is unnecessary, but perfect. It's so fun. It's just fun. It is fun. <laughs> like, how do I get red goo to drip down my walls? Yeah. I want to live in a gothic mansion that looks like it's constantly bloodstained. Yeah. <laughs> so as Edith is taking off her hat, she thinks she sees someone pass by in the mirror behind her. She follows the figure and finds an elevator. But Thomas sees her go near the elevator and catches up to her and says to never ever go below the first floor. Uh Uh-oh. He also dismisses her claim that someone walked by her. Lucille then greets them. She hugs Thomas for a very long time, noticeably. Suspicious behavior. And she's very cold to Edith. She's not very happy to see her. Lucille refuses to give Edith a copy of the house keys, and she grasps her copy of the keys extremely tightly in this really gorgeous shot where she sort of grasps the keys up into this, like, billowing sleeve of her gown. Edith then goes upstairs to take a bath. The water runs red from the clay, which Hmm. is so fun. (laughs) It's looking like the dorm shower. (laughs) (laughs) So true. We then see Thomas and Lucille discussing how the dog is still alive. Thomas says he couldn't bear to kill it. And then they also allude to needing Edith's money to getting out of there. Hmm. I guess he didn't marry her for all of the right reasons. Hmm. Yeah, I... Once again, this movie is not subtle. It 100% gives away that the Sharp siblings are just completely evil. Like, in this scene, right off the bat, like, they are not bothering to try to be like oh maybe the sharps are good and kind people no No. they don't care they're like in the scene we're going to tell you that they wanted to murder a dog have fun with that information (laughs) (laughs) 
So then we go back upstairs to Edith taking her bath, and she's playing fetch with the dog, like the dog's bringing the ball over to the tub, and she's throwing it back because the bathroom is really long and narrow. So then we see a shadowy figure, like the one she saw earlier, peer around the corner. Edith gets out of the bath to investigate, and the audience fully, while she has her back turned, sees a ghost walk right towards her. But as she turns around, the ghost disappears, and she doesn't see it, but she does hear it scream. The dog then reappears as soon as the ghost is gone, and the ball that the dog was playing fetch with mysteriously rolls into the room out of nowhere a second later. It's a really cool scene. Once again, anytime a ghost shows up, I'm like, damn, look at that. That's so cool. Later on, Thomas tries to soothe Edith's nerves. He says that the house seems to breathe in a ghastly way when the wind blows. I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to soothe her nerves. He's really um, trying his best and failing. Yeah, he's, like, he's like, it's just the house, and the house is like terrifying. Yeah. Or maybe it's like one of those emo boy things where he's like, what? It's like so comfortable how creepy it is. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I just like when the ghosts haunt me. It makes me feel so emo. (laughs) So he also gives her a beverage, which he says is firethorn berry tea. And she says it tastes really bitter. Then Thomas pointedly says that she should fall asleep without him that night. And we see Lucille watching through the keyhole of their bedroom. Not creepy at all. Normal sibling behavior. Normal sibling behavior. (laughs) There will definitely not be a plot twist making this way weirder later. Uh Uh-uh, not at all. Edith then wakes up the next morning and sees that Lucille's playing the piano downstairs. Lucille says that she's playing a lullaby that she used to sing to Thomas when they were young, and then talks about being confined to the attic as kids and calls her mother horrible. Lucille then shows her around the library and shows her a book with a pornographic image if you bend the pages a certain way. Lucille then says Edith shouldn't be shocked because she has presumably has had sex with Thomas. But Edith says Thomas has been respectful of her mourning. I do think this is objectively a hilarious way to admit to not having sex. Just be like, he was so respectful of my mourning. (laughs) Like, okay, sure. Sure, Edith. Back in America, Alan tells Edith's lawyer that they shouldn't be liquidating all of her assets, but the lawyer says that it's what Edith has asked for. Alan finds the check stub of the bribe Mr. Cushing wrote to Thomas, and he seems to be investigating what's happening. Something feels off. Edith then explores Allerdale Hall's attic, which has many of the black moths Lucille had mentioned before, in the totally obvious metaphor yeah, the yeah. totally obvious metaphor scene. Yeah. <laughs> the audience sees a ghost in a wheelchair being stored here, but Edith doesn't seem to notice. She then finds Thomas's attic workshop, and Thomas shows the toys he made for Lucille when they were little, which are kind of creepy. I wouldn't say they were kind of creepy. I would say they are terrifying, personally. <laughs> but I don't really like clowns, so maybe that's on me. No, that's valid. Thomas says that their father was always traveling, and their father put a lot of effort into losing the family fortune. That's funny. Thomas then says, Edith is different than other girls. You're different than other girls, Edith. The two kiss passionately until Lucille interrupts them, cock blocker, with more tea for Edith. 
And we do see that Thomas is pretty upset Lucille interrupted them. He seems to be very interested in Edith. Mm-hmm. And this is mostly Lucille that's like, what if you never spent any time together ever? That night, Edith wakes up and finds that Thomas isn't in bed. She begins walking around a dark manor with a candelabra. Oh my god. Is she in a <laughs> nightgown? Oh my god. I I think she is. <gasps> oh my god. Oh my She's god. walking through a gothic mansion holding a candelabra in a floor-length white nightgown, which <laughs> is the best thing that could possibly happen in a horror movie. I'm sorry. It just is. In fact, this is the reason why we named our podcast Queer by Candlelight, because of this very unnecessary trope that I love so dearly. The candelabras are just so essential. They're so essential. I love the aesthetic. They're so fun. But also, I always think, this isn't horror, I always think about New Girl every time. (laughs) One of the characters, he buys a candelabra from a garage sale and he keeps rubbing it because he thinks a genie's going to appear and I'm like... Wrong thing, bud. Wrong, Wrong thing, thing, bud. Yeah. <laughs> love, love a candelabra and floor-length nightgowns. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so Edith is walking along, looking gorgeous, and she hears these eerie noises in this hall that's lined with spikes on the ceiling. Um, interesting hmm. design choice. Once again, the set is gorgeous. Anti-bird architecture. Anti-bird architecture. <laughs> anti-moth architect. Oh, yeah, they definitely have to keep the moths off the ceiling, you're right. So, the noises seem to be coming out of a closet door part of the way down this hallway, and she thinks that maybe the dog is in the closet, but then she sees the dog not in the closet. So what is in the closet? She opens the door and sees a ghost that was rattling the handle and a case of wax cylinder recordings, which I didn't know what they are, but we learn later in the movie they are sort of like a gramophone or like a CD precursor, I guess. So then the ghost starts like dragging itself down the hallway, almost like a zombie. It's so effective, like the ghost can't even walk. And she flees into the elevator, which goes, you'll never guess, into the basement, where Thomas warned her not to go. No way. What a rebel. The elevator. Yeah, the elevator. (laughs) Edith doesn't want to go to the basement, but the elevator is moving without her, like, telling it to. Mm -hmm. In the basement, she finds vats of red clay and a suitcase with the name Enola S. carved on it. The next day, Thomas is working on his machine, and Edith tries to ask him if anyone has died violent deaths in the house. Thomas refuses to answer suspiciously, and then injures his hand on the machine. Edith then bandages his hand, and Thomas expresses his frustrations. Ah, woe is me. I'm a failure. He says that soon it will snow outside, at which point Edith will learn why they call Allerdale Hall Crimson Peak, at which point the shoe finally drops for Edith about what exactly her mother had been warning her about, which is the very house that she is now trapped in. So Thomas explains a little bit more that the reason why they call it Crimson Peak is that all the red clay from the mine stains the snow red, leading to the whole property looking like it's been stained bright red. So fun. So camp. Oh, it's camp. It's definitely camp. (laughs) We then go back to America, where Alan is continuing to investigate. Edith's lawyer says that she's requested all of her assets to be transferred over to Thomas. 
The lawyer then tells Alan that Mr. Cushing talked to Holly before his death. So Alan should ask Holly about any suspicions he has. Edith, back back in Britain, Edith, while walking outside, sees another ghost pointing away from the manor and is beginning to have trouble breathing and starts to cough up blood. Which, classic sign of tuberculosis in, like, a lot of cinema. Well, yeah, it could be tuberculosis, or it could be that classic Victorian you're-about-to-die disease. That's true. Um... Which is much more non-specific and can be fit into really anything, anything. with no uh, symptoms other than coughing up blood. That's true. Um, Thomas is once again not in bed when she wakes up in the middle of the night. So Edith tries to talk to the ghosts, who pull her to the floor when she asks them to touch her hand. She also seems to hear sound of a woman being murdered and sees a ghost with a meat cleaver sticking out of her head in the bathtub. Real creepy scene. Yeah, I definitely think this is probably a reference to The Shining with the, like, corpse in the bathtub mm-hmm. scene. I mean, it is a pretty common motif of something scary happening in the bathroom in horror movies, but this specifically did feel very like, oh, yep, she pulled aside the curtain and there was a corpse there. <laughs> so the ghost in the bathtub tells her to leave now and that his blood will be on her hand. Thomas hears her screaming and grabs her and Lucille gives her more tea to help comfort her. So much tea. Damn. Yeah. They're drinking a lot of tea. <laughs> maybe so it's so British. Maybe it's just because they're in Britain. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, like, for oh, sure. Do you like a pot of tea? And you're like, tea again? God. But she keeps drinking it, so. She does keep drinking it. <laughs> so Thomas suggests an excursion to the post office the next day to clear her head because he needs to pick up a new part for his machine. Lucille emphasizes that Allerdale Hall is Edith's home now and that she has nowhere else to go. Lucille and Thomas question how she knows about her mother as soon as Edith leaves the room, uh, apparently referring to Edith's statement that there was a dead woman in the bathtub. So we now know that this particular ghost is the ghost of Lucille and Thomas's mother. It's kind of suspicious. Yeah, (laughs) I hope. She died a natural death with that meat cleaver sticking yeah, out of her head. I'm sure. It looks like looks like cancer or something. Mm-hmm. You gotta cut out the cancer. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> We're big fans of Malignant here at this podcast. <laughs> so Lucille also says that as soon as Edith signs the paper, she wants her out of the house. The next day, Edith goes with Thomas to pick up his machine parts at the post office. And while at the post office, Edith picks up her letters, most of which are from her lawyer, and one of which is from Milan, which concerns her because she doesn't she doesn't know anyone from Italy. Edith and Thomas then decide to stay the night at the post office because there was a snowstorm, and Edith kind of wanted to stay at the post office anyways. Makes sense, you know? As beautiful as the manor is, like, if you see that many ghosts, you're kind of like, oh, post office it is. Back in America, Alan gets the Sharp's address and talks to Holly who then reveals that the document he gave to Mr. Cushing was that Thomas has already been married and therefore could not marry Edith. Holly also reveals that he found an old newspaper clipping about a murder at Allerdale Hall. I wonder who it could be. Do you think she had a meat cleaver in her head? That sounds kind of familiar. Maybe you're right. Hmm. So back at the post office, Edith says the little room they've been given is far better than the house and asks Thomas why they can't leave the house. Thomas says the house is all they have, 
but concedes when Edith points out that she left everything she had behind when she moved to live with him. Thomas does look very concerned when Edith mentions she got a letter from Milan, but then Thomas and Edith decide to have sex at the post office, and they're still mostly clothed because it's Victorian times. But I did see Tom Hiddleston's butt crack without my consent. I was not expecting to see his butt crack that night. I was like, damn, that is a man's butt on my screen right now. Wow. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That did happen. I do think it's interesting that they do show him naked, but they never show her. Which is the exact opposite of most horror movies, so I kind of vibe with that. It goes with Del Toro saying he wanted to make a feminist film. So Thomas and Edith look super happy when they come back to Allerdale Hall the next day, but Lucille has a total freakout asking where they were. She throws a bunch of breakfast food at Edith, and Edith says, well, we got snowed in. We couldn't come back. But Lucille is super concerned that they spent the night together, although she claims to have just been worried for their health. While Lucille is making tea, Edith steals a key that she sees on Lucille's keyring that, if you remember, she specifically said Edith could not have a copy of any of the house keys um, because she sees a key with the name Enola carved on it. Edith then reads the letters. One is a letter from her lawyer asking for her signature before they can transfer her money over to Thomas, which she doesn't sign because then she gets distracted by the other letter, the letter from Milan. Turns out, that was meant for this mysterious Enola person. She goes down to the basement to unlock Enola's trunk with the key she stole from Lucille. And in the trunk, she finds a gramophone player and three envelopes labeled with three women's names in the cities, Milan, Edinburgh, and London. Which Edith remembers, these were the places that her father had mentioned Thomas had tried and failed to raise capital in before. Edith then hears a clunk in one of the vats of red clay and opens it. She doesn't find anything, but after she leaves, the camera shows a skeleton rising to the surface, the same red color as the ghost Edith has already been seeing. Thomas asks Lucille for more coal for his machine that he's working on, which he got working, and Lucille gets offended when Thomas says he wants to show the machine to Edith. When Lucille goes to get the key that leads to the coal storage, she realizes the key that says Enola is missing. Lucille goes to look for Edith, but Edith realizes the danger and tries to make it look like she's been napping, which includes this really cool sort of chase scene through the upper story of this house. I loved how dramatic it was as you see first Edith and then always like around a corner so she can't see Edith, Lucille like pursuing. And Edith asks Lucille for a glass of cold water saying she was napping because she had a headache. And Lucille sets the key ring down before getting her the glass of water. Edith puts the key back on the ring, not realizing that Lucille ever noticed it was missing. However, Lucille knows the key has reappeared so she now has proof that Edith had stolen it. That night, Edith gets the wax recording cylinders the ghost had showed her previously and put them in the gramophone she had found in Enola's trunk. The recording is of Pamela Upton, who is clearly married to Thomas from the contents of the recording. Each of the three envelopes from Enola's trunk are full of pictures of Thomas and the three women. And there's also another recording of Pamela saying that the Sharps are trying to steal her money and that they're killing her with the poison in the tea that Lucille always makes. One of the pictures shows that the dog Edith has taken in was Enola's. And Edith completely freaks out, 
valid. Yeah. (laughs) And tries to run away. But there's a massive snowstorm outside. And she stumbles back inside and passes out on the stairs, coughing heavily. Wonder why. Oh, it's Mm. Victorian, you're about to die disease. (laughs) But we learn that this is not a natural disease, but caused by the fire thorn berry tea that Lucille keeps forcing Edith to drink, even though she says it tastes bitter. So the next morning, Lucille wakes her up and tells her that she can't go see a doctor because they're snowed in. She's trapped in the house for the rest of the winter. Edith refuses Lucille's tea, but eats the porridge Lucille offers. Lucille tells Edith that she tended her mother in the bed Edith is now in after her father broke her mother's leg, saying that their father was abusive. Thomas asks for a moment alone with Edith and warns Edith away from drinking the tea. Later, Thomas tells Lucille that Edith is dying, but Lucille responds that Edith knows everything and has stopped drinking the tea. So, she put the poison in the porridge. Thomas tells Lucille to stop, but Lucille responds that they have to succeed, so that she's not locked up again, and so Thomas is not hanged. Both siblings say that they must always be together, and Thomas says he cannot leave. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, so once again, we get another one of these scenes where the Sharp siblings are talking when Edith's not around, and the writers do not really bother to try to hide the Sharp's motivations. We learn that both of them are guilty of murder, and that Lucille has previously been behind bars. Alan, in Britain, arrives at the post office, but has to walk to Allerdale Hall, because all of the transportation services are closed for the winter. Edith, now in a wheelchair, sees a ghost cradling a baby and tells the ghost that she knows the ghost is Enola. Enola then points to the attic, and Edith goes there and finds Thomas and Lucille passionately kissing, gasp, (laughs) while Lucille sings a creepy lullaby. Interesting behavior from two siblings, very sibling behavior over here totally yeah so here we get to the creepy plot twist of this film which is that these siblings are in an incestuous relationship which is very concerning but it was a fairly staple plot twist of the gothic genre yeah so apparently del toro decided to revive that lovely 1800s plot twist for us yeah so fun. So the two look up and see Edith has entered the room, and Edith sprints out crying, obviously. Lucille follows her and says that everything is out in the open now. Edith says, I knew you weren't siblings, but Lucille gleefully replies that they are siblings. And Lucille pushes Edith off the balcony while grabbing the ring that she'd been so possessive of earlier off Edith's hand. At that very moment, Alan arrives at the house and tends to Edith, who survived the fall off the balcony, but has a sprained or broken leg. Lucille then claims that Edith is delirious from an illness. But Alan sees the ring on Lucille's hand and knows something's wrong. Alan tells Edith that he's going to take her away, while Lucille grabs a knife from the kitchen and tells Thomas he needs to be the killer this time. Lucille confronts Alan as he tries to carry Edith out of the door, and Alan says that he knows Lucille has been poisoning Edith. 
He also gives Edith the newspaper clipping that Holly had found for him, which says that Lucille and Thomas's mother was brutally murdered with a meat cleaver in the bathroom, and that while no suspect was ever arrested, the only people present at the scene of the crime were Thomas and Lucille. Oh my god. Young Thomas and Lucille. The clipping goes on to say that a 12-year-old Thomas was sent to a boarding school and a 14-year-old Lucille was sent to a mental institution. During this whole confrontation, Thomas is protesting and saying that there is more to the story, but Lucille is silent and clearly dangerously angry. Lucille stabs Alan in the arm and tells Thomas to finish him off. And then Lucille kills Edith's dog. It's so sad. It's kind of off screen, but I always hate when the dog gets killed in horror movies. Mm -hmm. It's so upsetting. Like, it's a dog. It did nothing to you. I mean... Nothing wrong. It was so sweet. But yeah, the dog does have sort of an off screen, but mm, more graphic than I would have liked. You definitely hear it, like, yelping. Yeah. While Lucille is distracted with killing the dog, Thomas asks Alan where he can stab him without killing him. So, an external shot of the outside of the house shows for the first time that since the heavy snowfall, the entire ground outside is bright red from the clay, just as the name Crimson Peak suggests. So, we get this amazing establishing shot here of just this, like, it looks blood-soaked, like, Mm blood-soaked landscape, and you see that sort of where there's, like, footprints, they look red. It's really good. So Thomas then takes a stabbed but still alive Alan down into the basement and says that he will get Edith to the basement soon before Lucille can force her to sign the papers, which would allow them to kill her. Meanwhile, in the attic, Lucille is burning Edith's manuscript and trying to force her to sign the papers while handing over the money. Lucille then reveals that the baby Enola had been carrying around was Lucille's baby that was born from the incest with Thomas, and consequently was not healthy. Enola had tried to save the baby, but failed. Lucille also talks about how she would do anything for Thomas, and even the horrible things she has done because it's a monstrous love. Lucille says that she killed their mother after she found out about their incestuous relationship, going to show just how far she would take things. Edith insists that Thomas is being suffocated by Lucille and that he doesn't love her. But Lucille threatens her at knife point into signing the papers and says that Lucille killed Edith's father, so she admits to that murder. Edith then stabs Lucille with the pin that her father gave her at the very beginning of the movie and flees the room. Go off. It's a very iconic moment, in my opinion. (laughs) Thomas then finds Edith and says that he does love her and has saved Alan, who's in the basement. Thomas also swears to get the papers back. Then, Thomas burns the papers, which enrages Lucille. Thomas says that Edith needs to live and that they should leave Allerdale Hall because he wants freedom. But then, the idea of Thomas being in love with Edith, in love with someone else, causes Lucille to stab Thomas in the chest several times and then finally in the face. As Thomas pulls the knife out of his face, in a moment of extreme body horror, Lucille seems to regret her actions and sobs over his dying body. 
Yeah, every time I watch this scene, I cringe so badly. I hate the imagery of pulling a knife out of your own face. Yeah. Disgusting. That's insane. Body horror is always what gets to me in horror movies. I usually am, like, not that bothered by the, like, ghosts or whatever, but not being stabbed in the face. So Edith hears Lucille sobbing and tries to go rescue Thomas, but instead finds Lucille, who chases her into the elevator with a knife. There's a stunning shot of Lucille in also a flowing white nightgown, because at this point in the movie... Everyone is wearing flowing white nightgowns. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just flowing out behind her. She runs down the stairs. So both Edith and Lucille are in these nightgowns during the entire final showdown, which I think was such a fun choice. But also, it shows the difference in character because Edith is in the plain white one that she's had on the whole time, whereas Lucille has a green robe over hers that's also belted, so she looks a bit more in control and is in sort of a darker color scheme, continuing the contrast between Edith's light clothes and the sharp, dark clothes. So as Edith runs away from Lucille, she goes to the kitchen and picks up a giant knife. So we now have two women carrying giant knives around with them, which is great. Mm-hmm. So fun. So fresh. I think all women should carry giant knives around with them. While wearing flowing nightgowns. Yeah. You, you never know. You never know when you're going to run into, like, another Lucille Sharp. Mm-hmm. Always be strapped. Yep. yep. <laughs> So the two get into a knife fight, oh the drama, with the end result of Edith getting safely into the elevator and going to the basement. In the basement, Edith discovers that Alan is still alive, but drops her knife because it's a horror movie. Like She gotta drop the knife. <laughs> yeah. You have to drop the knife. If you are a horror movie protagonist, that knife is going on the ground. Uh-huh, 100%. So the two hide behind one of the giant vats of red clay as Lucille appears in the basement. And Lucille pulls up a floor tile and pulls out the original giant meat cleaver that she says is a souvenir from killing her mother. Oh, it's so, once again, I get why that critic said this movie is borderline camp. It's a lot. Also, that knife would not still be sharp. Like, 20 years later, that is a dull knife. But I'm not even mad because the concept is so ideal. Mm-hmm. Either then grabs her knife back, go off, and then stands up to face Lucille. The two sprint up the mining equipment. Edith sees the startling red snow for the first time. This entire thing was just so fun to watch. It was so exhilarating, just everything about it. Lucille slashes Edith's face and disarms her, but Edith picks up a shovel instead. Lucille then says that she won't stop until she's dead. Edith says that the ghost of Thomas is behind Lucille, which it is. And that distracts Lucille long enough to allow Edith to bash Lucille's head in with the shovel. With Lucille finally dead, Edith cradles the head of Thomas's ghost, who seems to lean into her touch before disappearing. Once again, the score here is gorgeous. I love the use of a full orchestra in a horror movie setting like this. The way that it switches from this dramatic chase music to the sweeping romantic theme from earlier in the movie as Thomas's ghost appears is chef's kiss. So fun. And then we return back to the shot that the movie opened with, 
and Edith's narration that ghosts are real, making the movie come to a full circle. Then we see a closing shot of Edith and Alan walking away from the manor. We also hear a narrator explaining that ghosts can be tied to a time or a place, but the strongest ones are tied to emotions like loss, revenge, or love. We then see Lucille's ghost playing the piano in Allerdale Hall. So that's the summary of Crimson Peak. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss elements of the movie we loved, ones we took issue with, and generally things that we felt need to be discussed in discussion of a queer horror movie podcast. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot, so we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from our break. Maybe we'll put in some ads there, or maybe I won't have figured out how to do that yet. (laughs) So in this section of the podcast, we're going to talk about what we loved about this movie, what we took issue with, and why you can interpret from a queer lens if you try hard enough. So one thing about this movie is that women are both the protagonist and antagonist of this horror film, which is pretty rare in this genre. A lot of times there's a female protagonist, but there's very few female antagonists in horror films. And it does make the film somewhat feminist in nature. I also like the fact that Alan shows up to save Edith, but fails and is incapacitated completely for the climax of this film. And Edith saves herself perfectly well. Mm -hmm. Honestly, girl boss. Like, actually. Um, It's... I I really like that, too, because it's just so different from the usual narrative we see where it's a damsel in distress and then, whoa, her prince comes. It's like, nah, dog, she's, she got this. (laughs) Yeah, this woman is not being saved by her love interest. Mm Mm-hmm. So something to note about this topic is that Del Toro has claimed that this is a feminist film and that his intent was specifically to make a feminist film. Gothic horror has also always been a genre where women have been pretty prominent as authors and as characters. We have the Bronte sisters with books like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. We have Anne Radcliffe, who wrote a lot of well-known Gothic novels. We have Edith Wharton, who the character was named after. But it's also worth noting that I'm not really convinced this is a feminist film, and one reason for this is that all the women in the film are negative figures except for Edith, so there is no positive relationships between women, and mothers specifically are depicted very negatively with the Sharps mother and with Edith's mother not being negative necessarily but not being present either. No, I totally agree. I think I think it's so interesting to note that there are no positive relationships between women because I feel like, because I mean, relationships are just like such a huge thing. You know, humans are social creatures. And especially in like a female sphere, you know, the relationships you have with other people, other women specifically, have a huge impact on you and the way you go about the world. I also agree that, like, with your concerns about this not being a feminist film because of the she's not like other girls trope that we saw throughout the film. She's just not (laughs) like those other girls. She wants to be an author. She writes. Wow. I mean, there's just so many 
like, there's just so many issues with the she's not like other girls trope. And although I don't think this film does this, but other films where they have this she's not like other girls trope, it plays into the manic girl pixie, manic dream pixie girl. Manic, manic pixie, pixie dream, dream girl. <laughs> trope. Um, and I don't really see that here because she has her own dreams and aspirations, which is something that we don't see with manic pixie dream girls. But it definitely, there's definitely a correlation. Yeah. So I think in summary... It is roughly a feminist film, but in more of a bare-bones sort of way than a groundbreaking way, especially for a film that was made in 2015, so that's pretty recent. Also, having both a female protagonist and antagonist is one reason why you could definitely read this film as a bit queer, even though it isn't really. Um, I definitely... Enemies to lovers question mark? Yeah, enemies to lovers question mark. I definitely saw some people online saying that instead of the incest plot twist, they were expecting Lucille to be queer. I definitely also expected Thomas to be queer, actually. Mm -hmm. But there is something about the way that these siblings interact with others that would lend itself to a queer reading if the film had handled it slightly differently. I mean, there's also, like, that feeling of otherness, you know? Which, like, as queer people, it's like... There's straight society and then there's us, you know, and that's something that like you often do see in media where you see queer people or like minorities being perceived as the other. So that could also like play into them being different. Exactly. Villains are often depicted as queer. Yeah, Yeah. queer coded. And I do think that applies to the Sharps. I and several friends I've talked to were expecting one or both of them to be queer. Uh, Being a film that was made in 2015, that wouldn't be that unexpected. And if you also expect it to be a vampire film, which many people I know did, vampires are often or always uh, queer. Yeah. Um, So it's not an unreasonable way to read this film, especially if you have not gotten to the ending yet and don't really know what's going on. Another reason you could read this film as queer is because it is, in fact, gothicness to the point of camp. As critics have said, it goes so far into parodying this genre that it basically becomes a parody of itself. Mm A hundred percent. I mean, a house with red clay that drips down that just looks like blood. Come on. Yeah. That's so camp. It is camp. (laughs) So another thing we wanted to talk about was the use of ghosts exactly as Edith describes in her novel. So there's a meta story inside a story going on where it is implied that the movie you are watching is also the book that Edith is writing, in which ghosts are in it, but it's not a ghost story. So the ghosts are helpful throughout their movie and do their best to help out Edith because they do want her to be saved from the sharps who killed them. But ultimately, they have little to no effect on the way events unfold. They never really are able to do anything to help Edith, except maybe at the end where Thomas does help her defeat Lucille. But most of the other ghosts throughout the film try to warn Edith, but she's pretty scared of them and they're not really able to affect them. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think that was also a really interesting choice because, you know, like when you're watching horror movies, you're expecting the ghost or the supernatural creature to be the scariest thing. But the scariest thing in this movie were the humans, which I really liked. 
I agree. To have there be ghosts, but for the villains to be human, did feel like a fresh take on the genre. Mm-hmm. Another important point is that the only people of color in this entire movie are two black women that are maids at Thomas and Lucille's hotel, which feels, um, I yeah. I feel like, I don't even remember. I was yeah. Like, I thought the entire cast was white. It feels very insensitive to have them in those two roles and then nowhere else in the movie. Yeah. It is a period piece, but that's not really an excuse when you could have extras or characters in the scenes where there's lots of people, or really even just use casting where people of color are in lead roles, even if that maybe isn't historically accurate, and instead they chose to put them in these two roles and literally nowhere else even in the background. That's insane. That's insane. I fully did not even realize that there were any POC in this movie. Damn. And the, and the fact that they're there in that instance. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a major critique I have of this film. I don't think there was enough thought put into racial motivations for casting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving on, uh, like specific details from Del Toro. He insisted on building a physical set for Alladale Hall and like, Absolutely beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. So one reason why building this physical set was so important is because it allows for shots like the one of Lucille running down the stairs in her nightgown after Edith. Usually if sets are built or partially CGI'd in other ways, it is difficult for camera shots to track characters from room to room, especially between floors. And the complete building of this house allowed them to have these gorgeous tracking shots like this. Also, he found ways to hide the word fear in each room of the house, which I'm not sure if it ever shows up on the movie. I wasn't able to find out that information. (laughs) But apparently, if you look at the set very closely, the word fear is carved into each room. That's so cool. That's genuinely so cool. Also... When Del Toro was casting these three leads, he gave Mia Wasikowska, who plays Edith, uh, Jessica Chastain, who plays Lucille, and Tom Hiddleston, who plays Thomas, written backstories for their characters and lists of small details about them, their likes and dislikes, things that they do in their free time that would allow for these actors to get a better picture of their character. And I think Del Toro's intention for this was that they could make their portrayals more well-rounded rather than the somewhat one-dimensional characters that definitely this movie leans towards yeah a hundred percent that's so cool i wish i could like read the backstories and look at what details he gave them yeah i would really love to know more i think the only one that's really been talked about much publicly is that he told jessica chastain that lucille likes wearing tight-fitting clothes because it makes her feel more in control. That makes sense. And then that also kind of ties into the last scene where even though, like, it's kind of, like, so chaotic, you know, everything's going around with Lucille chasing Edith around with a big-ass knife and everything. Like, it's such a chaotic scene. But I think you had mentioned, too, she was wearing the green robe that was tied in to give her some sort of control. That's real cool. And, like, that goes great into our next point which is about the intensity of costuming um so as briefly mentioned before there's a contrast between the sharps and everyone else especially between lucille and edith you know when we're first introduced to the sharps we see these 
two like really really emo siblings in their like dark like brooding clothes um and then everyone else in these bright colors with like blonde hair blonde or gray hair you know and it's just such a stark contrast you know kind of setting the sharps away from everyone else um and even the first gown that we see lucille in um at the party it looks like a pool of blood absolutely gorgeous um, and something that's really interesting to note is that as the film progresses, we see Edith um, go from these lighter colored gowns to more darker colored gowns, kind of reflecting both how much more involved she's becoming with the Sharp family, but also just kind of the dark nature of the film. And once again, just going back to the last scene with both of them in the nightgowns, you know, Lucille had a green coat that was still tied around, making her feel more in control of things. Um, whereas Edith was vulnerable and very flowy. It goes to show, like, the differences in their natures. Exactly. I think the costume designer for this, uh, Kate Hawley, was so brilliant when she designed these costumes for these characters because it even ties into what Del Toro was telling the actors about their characters. And as you said, Lucille's costumes get darker, which I do think reflects her involvement with the Sharps, but I also think it reflects her own loss of innocence as she's forced Mm -hmm. to confront these dark truths about the people that she's now married to. She's so much less happy and this reflects in what she's wearing. So yeah, when we see her at the start of the film, she's wearing yellow, she's wearing gray, but as she spends more time at Allerdale Hall, she starts wearing like a black jacket with yellow underneath, things like that. So she'll still have these bright colors, but only in splashes mm-hmm. compared to her much lighter earlier gown. I didn't even think about that. You're so right. Also, there's incest in this film. The moment the moment we saw them, because I was like, I knew it. Those two, they were acting too close to be just siblings. I definitely thought there was something going on between them the first time I watched it, but much like Edith within the film, I thought the plot twist would be that Lucille was his first wife, mm-hmm. and they would not be related. Yeah. But much like Edith, I was surprised to learn this was not the case. Mm-hmm. No, because... Lucille was real happy. She was like, yeah, we are siblings. And yeah, we do make out. What about it? Like, (laughs) girl, please. Girl, there is something about it. What do you mean, what about it? Oh, it's so ridiculous. But it does go back to this gothic romance genre that Del Toro was definitely extremely heavily referencing in this film. There is incest in notable gothic novel Wuthering Heights, as well as, I think, multiple of Anne Radcliffe's books. And even in gothic novels that didn't have that specific plot twist, there's a lot of similar analogs we could look at, like Mr. Rochester's wife being locked in the attic the entire time in Jane Eyre. These books were going for shock value, and Mm -hmm. this film was too. Mm -hmm. Also, just this whole movie was beautiful. Just everything about it. The sets, absolutely beautiful. And it's so fun. Like, why are there random spikes in the hallway? I don't know. There sure are. I love the (laughs) random hallway spikes. Oh, they're unnecessary, and I love them. Mm -hmm. Um, And just, like, the costumes, the soundtrack, which Elizabeth has talked a lot about. um, And, like, the ghosts are all, like, insanely gorgeous and so cool. 
also, like, just the house sinking into the red clay, you know, and the clay constantly running down the walls, and the clay in the bathtub pipes, and the house, once again, the house sinking into the clay, is just a symbolism of the decay of the Sharp family, and also the land dragging Thomas down into it, um, because, you know, the whole reason he needs his money so he can make the machine to harvest the clay, but... It's not working out, and and with the house and the clay being the like only things this family has, they're getting sucked deeper and deeper, and it's getting harder to leave. Exactly, and I think that this overt symbolism of this gorgeous mansion, as we talked about, they're not going for subtlety with these metaphors, really ties back into the reason why I personally am so attracted to this film, which is the visual aesthetic of it. The plot, weird, could have been better. The symbolism, too obvious. But the visual feast that your eyes have while watching this movie, so good. So fun. So, Dahlia, let's talk about how we would rate this film. On this podcast, we're going to use two rating systems. First, we shall rate it on a scale of how good we thought the movie actually was. <laughs> and then we shall rate the movie in terms of queer representation. So we want to talk about these in two different categories because this is a podcast where we're trying to focus on the queer elements of films. And even though we did pick a little bit of an outlier for our first episode because it's just a movie we're both really passionate about and we thought it would be fun, in the future we probably will be talking about movies with overtly queer characters or characters that are popularly considered to be queer, <laughs> um, and this rating will be much more relevant. Mm -hmm. In terms of how good the movie was... I really, really like the aesthetics. I really like the costume design and the production. And I think it's just, I think it's so fun. Um, the plot was also good. I think the plot was good. <laughs> so I guess out of 10, I would probably give this like a, like a 7. Like a 7 out of 10. I was going to give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah. So yeah, in that range. There are definitely things we talked about that could have been improved on. Mm -hmm. But... I think it just makes up for it in how much I enjoy watching it. Exactly. In terms of queer representation, um, I think there are definitely hints at how it could be queer, but it's definitely not as overtly queer as it could be, you know? So I'd give this maybe like a 3.5 out of 10 or 4. I don't know. I was going to give it a 2 out of 10. Okay. Like, I feel like you're being generous. I am like, so generous. I'll say, I'll say a 3. Yeah. It's a low, low. in terms of queer representation. Yeah. But like I said, I love it for camp reasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love it for visual design. And we wanted to talk about it because it was one of the first movies that we ever really clicked while watching. We were yeah. like, yeah, oh, we have the same taste in questionable movies. Okay. <laughs> so we thought it would be the perfect first episode. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us this week on Queer by Candlelight. We will have a new episode in two weeks. And the way we're choosing the next movie to review is we're going to try to connect them all through themes, 
actors, anything we can think of that would connect one movie to the next. And so we have a long chain of slightly related, but ultimately mostly unrelated movies <laughs> that can all be vaguely connected to each other. So the way in which the next one is going to be connected is that it also features a gorgeous mansion in a prominent role and involves walking around said mansion at night. Mm-hmm. So fun, so great, so slay. <laughs> so join us in two weeks to hear about our next topic. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti. With special thanks to Carlos Myers for help with music composition. Mm-hmm.